0: Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. This is episode number 18, and today we sit down with Dr. Eli Friedman. He's a sports cardiologist who specializes in treating athletes. And today we talk about everything related to the heart. We talk about the basic physiology of the heart. What are some of the changes that occur in response to both endurance training and resistance training? What is the role of a sports cardiologist and how he can help you improve your? life, and heart health. We talk about what are some of the screening methods that are being used for, uh, for athletes, also what the role of EKGs and ECHOs are. And then we also focus on major takeaways that you can use and start implementing to improve your heart health.
1: This episode is brought to you by Go Strong, the best, strongest, nicest equipment manufacturers in the entire game. Don't believe us? Come get a workout in at Hybrid and and check it out for yourself.
0: Yeah. So today, uh, sitting in the conversation, we have Dr. Bill Kelly. He is actually went to school with me. Uh, Bill has a successful physical therapy practice in Hollywood. uh, Where are we? For Lauderdale called Aries Physical Therapy. And he's awesome. He really knows his stuff. And I would trust him for my own care. So that's saying a lot. FYI. Yeah, you're welcome for the endorsement. Yeah, and we also have Hayden Bowe, We also have Ian Kaplan,
1: and Ian and the myself. Ryan. Oh, and Rhyno. oh shit, Ian. Ian sorry, Rhyno. I
0: forgot about you. And Ian the Rhino. So sit down, enjoy the podcast. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Dr. Friedman. How are you today? Good stuff. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so Good. much. I'll let you do your your introduction for our listeners, but um. Doctor Friedman is a sports cardiologist and you specialize mainly in also or you specialize in treating athletic population. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Can you tell me a little bit more about your education and what your current clinical practice consists Uh, of?
2: Absolutely. So uh, I went to uh, medical school at Chicago Medical School, then did all of my training at the University of Pittsburgh, both internal medicine and then cardiology. And during that training, uh, being an athlete myself, fell in love with sort of the dedicated cardiovascular care of athletes and knew that immediately that that's what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, I'm I'm vested in it. it. It's really important to me. And it's really important to me to keep all athletes healthy and safe and doing what they love. So that is really the focus of my practice now, taking care of athletes, anybody who has cardiovascular concerns relating to sport, anyone who has symptoms that they're concerned about could be their heart, and then anybody who actually has established cardiovascular diagnoses and wants to continue to do what they love. So um, that's what we're doing, and uh, very privileged and fortunate to be able to.
0: That's awesome. I'm excited to have this conversation. I think Um, not a lot of fitness podcasts have – cardiologists on their on their as a as a guest on their podcast and i think there's so much that we need to discuss for the benefit of our listeners that just needs to be said even though it might make some people uncomfortable which is what we're talking about your heart as as uh, powerlifters, as strength athletes we're concerned by pretty much every single muscle in our body but for some reason we're neglecting the most important one which is our heart so i was thinking about that as i was reading a few research papers yesterday And I just thought the irony, right? Like we're so consumed with making every single muscle look a certain way with strengthening every single muscle, our performance, our multifidus, our transverse abdominis, And we just forget that the most important one, the most vital one is our heart.
3: That's what really turned me on during your lecture. So I had the privilege of listening to Eli speak a few weeks ago at Grand Rounds. And that was a big thing. He started opening slide was a bicep next to the heart. (laughs) <laughs> and he said they're both muscles why are we treating them differently yeah. yeah and it really just sent that light bulb off in my head and i immediately thought of you and the podcast and, and your audience yeah and getting them up here so that he could talk about that juxtaposition of a regular cardiologist who sees an athlete and may not have any idea what's going on versus them going to him or another sports cardiologist mm-hmm. and getting athlete-centered care in something that keeps them doing what they love because as we all know athletics is part of a lot of people's identities mm-hmm. yeah. plus there's a good excuse to get you up here because <laughs> us being friends isn't a good enough excuse
4: <laughs> yeah i think it's also uh counterintuitive to a lot of people because they assume athletes have the healthiest hearts so why would yeah. they need a cardiologist like what do you right. that's a bad business <laughs> you know we're going to see healthy people there. so i'm interested to learn what kinds of things you typically see in your office and what and and what it looks like to take care of an athlete and what athletes need to know about their heart, yeah. you know, to, to make sure that they can, one, be healthy and two, you know, perform at their sport for, for a long time.
2: No, absolutely. I I would love to be unemployed selling ice cream on the beach and just hanging out every day. But the the unfortunate reality is that heart disease is the number one killer of men and women uh, in in this country. And uh, exercise, as much as we all love it, is not immune therapy. So there Mm -hmm. are still things that are gonna arise. There are still conditions that we may be predisposed to based on our genetics. And occasionally sport has been associated with certain cardiovascular conditions. And we'll certainly touch on uh, the full scope of all of this. But again, I agree with you, a really important message to get out. Athletes prefer to stay away from doctors for the most part, but again, it, it, as Bill just said, it, the heart is a muscle and, and we have to treat it as such. And especially when we think of athletes, that heart muscle will change based on the sport that an athlete does. So it, it, great conversation. And and again, just really fortunate to be here and talk about yeah,
0: it. Yeah, so, thank you for being
2: here. Uh, what are the most common
1: uh, issues that you see in your office, like Ian was uh, getting at? And is there a particular type of
2: athlete that you feel
1: is m- most susceptible to certain issues?
2: Yeah, so it, it, the, we see lots of different athletes. So the, the scope of what we see are um, three things. First of all, somebody who wants to make sure that he or she is safe to, to participate in sports. So like the screening perspective of it, okay. just want to come see a cardiologist. They want to continue to exercise or they're thinking of maybe taking it to the next level mm-hmm. and want to make sure that that's safe to do. The, the second is symptomatic athlete. So an athlete who may be more fatigued than usual an athlete who may be having chest pain or palpitations or this thing that we call disproportionate or inappropriate shortness of breath because all athletes when they exercise are short of breath (laughs) but are they doing so at an appropriate level versus huffing and puffing just in their Mm warm-ups And then we have athletes who have established diseases, who had a heart attack, who have an arrhythmia, who have a heart maybe that's not pumping as vigorously as they would like. And uh, they want to continue to exercise at the levels that, that they're used to. And so that, that sort of runs the gamut. Now, the, the magic age that we sort of think of is the number 35. So once you cross over 35, number one, you become old, which, which is always very hard to, to say. sort of that master's athlete population. <laughs> And that comes with it. Certain cardiac conditions like coronary artery disease, atrial fibrillation. These are the most common things we see in our athletes, especially mm. in that master's athlete can population. Can you describe those? Yeah. Ab-
4: give people like a lay description ab- absolutely, of those things.
2: Yeah. So coronary artery disease is cholesterol plaque that's begun to build up in the arteries of the heart, um, mm. at the most extreme levels, heart attack. So blood flow ceases to the heart muscle. And we have to open that up with things like stents and cardiac catheterizations. Uh, but we can see that even in, in non. Clinically significant levels, things called um, atherosclerotic coronary artery disease, where it's not obstructing yet, but if we do something called like a coronary calcium score, or a coronary CTA, we can see that. And then atrial fibrillation is the most common abnormal heart rhythm worldwide. We see it very frequently in our endurance athletes. Um, it, it is an irregular heart rhythm from the top chambers of the heart. Uh, these are all the commercials you see on TV for things like Xarelto and Eliquis and Pradaxa or Coumadin, because little blood clots can form inside of the heart with that rhythm, they can break off and go to the brain and cause a stroke. So specifically in long-term endurance athletes, we see those two conditions, increased coronary calcium or coronary artery disease, and then atrial fibrillation as well. So, uh, So, and
0: these are as, as a consequence of
2: we th- we we have associations that the the higher levels and the higher intensities, specifically men, actually that higher intensities and and higher durations of endurance-based sport that we see that there are higher burdens of atrial fibrillation in, in this population and uh, coronary artery calcium, coronary artery disease. So, but,
0: it, before, oh sorry, no go please,
2: ahead. no please ask no, your. question. No, I was going to
0: say before we start asking you more advanced questions, yeah. I wanted to cover the basics. Yeah, definitely. So if you can do like a quick summary of um, like what are the relevant structures of the hard, Mm -hmm. How does the heart deliver blood to muscles? Absolutely. How does it get oxygenated?
2: Definitely. So the heart is a muscle, sits inside of your chest. There's four chambers to it. There are top chambers called atria. There are bottom chambers called ventricles. And we divide that up into two sides, the right side and the left side. The right side is the side that receives blood back from the body when the oxygen's already been taken up, pumps it into the lungs where it receives oxygen or the fuel for the body. That fuel and that blood is then pumped to the left side where it's received on the top chamber into the bottom chamber, the left ventricle and then pumped out to the body with all of that good oxygen inside of it and, and the gasoline for the body. so the body can, can structure, it can work at that point at the levels that we wanted to. Within those chambers, there are things called valves. So on the left side, we have or the right side, I'm sorry, we have the tricuspid valve, which is the, the valve in between the top chamber and the bottom chamber. and then the pulmonic valve which is the valve that opens up into the lungs. On the left side, we have the mitral valve in between the top and the bottom chamber, and then the aortic valve, which is the valve that leads to the aorta and, and uh, prevents blood from flowing backwards is, is, potential, is essentially the job of those valves. So make sure the blood flows forward and not backwards.
0: Yeah. So, we, so that's pretty much the normal heart. Correct. What would be the um, adaptations of an athlete's heart? That yeah, are developed so for it, exercise.
2: It, that's exactly right. Much like a, a power lifter, where their biceps will change, their quads will change. Their chest will change based on the, the strength training that he or she is doing. The same is true for an athlete's heart. So it really depends on what the athlete is sitting in front of us. So if we have strength-based athletes, th- then the heart is going to look one way. But if I have somebody who does no strength-based training whatsoever, but is running or cycling at high volumes for long periods in time, that heart will look much different than a strength-based. What athlete. are the differences? So, in our endurance based athletes, we think of that more as a volume load. So, endurance based athletes' cardiac output, how much the heart is pumping with every single beat and and for minutes at a time, goes up significantly. So, um, resting, that can be maybe six liters per minute. An endurance based athlete at the high levels can approach 20 liters per minute of cardiac output. And so, the heart chambers can actually dilate as a result of that and occasionally become a little bit thicker as well. On our strength based athletes, it's actually much like a bicep muscle. You're going to lift very heavy structures heavy weights the muscle will get bigger thicker it may shorten a little bit same inside of the heart that the blood pressure can rise during those episodes of of significant strength-based training
0: sorry can you touch on how much it can rise yeah
2: we can see uh, levels 250 millimeters of mercury on the systolic which is the top level of blood pressure if not higher sometimes too and 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 heavy lifting right and that's you know could be
4: double what people are resting. Correct, yeah, I mean, right, the the American Heart
2: Association, American College of Cardiology, the new blood pressure guidelines would suggest anything less than 120 over 80 blood Mm -hmm. pressure is normal now. So when when we're lifting very heavy weights and and really, you know, straining ourselves to push, push, push as hard as we can, our blood pressure on the systolic side is going up and up, and the heart being a muscle has to generate a force greater than that in order to propel blood forward, much like you have to Mm -hmm. generate a force heavier than the weight you're lifting Mm -hmm. in, in order to move that weight and, and gain the benefits of that so the heart this is why the heart changes structure it's a muscle it will adapt to that in order to meet the demands of the body so in strength-based athletes uh, converse to our endurance-based athletes the heart muscle will get thicker mm-hmm. yeah
0: yeah and that's that's so interesting and, and for for background yeah uh so in strength athletes, you have what's called concentric concentric hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, exactly right. right? Yeah. And what happens is that the end diastolic volume, so the amount of fluid that or blood that can be inside of the of the ventricles, is diminished. So the 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 cross um what's it called um the muscle cross links. now what's it called? The force, the, the, whatever. The, the leg tension relationship of the muscles the is not. The muscle cross yeah. bridges. The yeah. muscle yeah. cross bridges, and so. <laughs> not enough blood goes out.
2: So it's not necessarily enough. I mean, obviously to perform, especially at the levels you guys are all performing at, there's plenty of blood getting out there. Otherwise you wouldn't be so successful and wouldn't be able to gain and get stronger and better. Um, But you're exactly right. It's called concentric left ventricular remodeling and that Mm. the cavity gets big, the the muscle gets bigger, the cavity can sometimes get a little bit smaller in the endurance-based athletes. The term is called eccentric Mm. cardiac remodeling, eccentric uh, left ventricular hypertrophy. The cavity gets bigger and the walls will get a little bit thicker as well. Is
0: one better? than the
2: other is what so we the, the ventricle size gets bigger in the endurance athletes yeah is that better uh better better is a relevant term so we don't i can't say that we have specific data that way right now i mean if you let's say we have somebody who comes in the office who's not an athlete i'd rather see a bigger cavity that's pumping efficiently than a cavity that's smaller and thickened so i we're, we're starting to get data on this. Jonathan Kim and Aaron Baggish, Jonathan Kim's out of Emory, Aaron Baggish is out of, out of Harvard, did a study. They, they've done really longitudinal studies on football players. And we see that in football offensive linemen, in particular, guys who are getting bigger, gaining weight, that their blood pressure goes up, the elasticity of the arteries becomes less, so blood velocity comes higher and the left ventricle, the main pumping chamber of the heart becomes stiffer. Mm. That they, they are starting to describe this as what we call a maladaptive phenotype, that maybe this isn't so good. That can be reversed later on with cardiovascular exercise, weight loss, blood pressure control. I don't have data to say that in, in the strength-based population. Again, these are football offensive linemen who exceed 300 pounds um, who are told to gain weight so they're better at their position. But it, it's interesting data that certainly uh, requires further research and further study. In, in athletes in particular, we always say you have to know the subgroup that you're studying. So if I compare power lifters to marathon runners, I'm really doing a disservice. It's two completely different athletes with two Completely different sets of physiology, mm-hmm. so we we need athlete specific data. So, but again, that that work from from Dr. Bagish and, and uh, Dr. Kim, it, it's interesting and it, it does bode further further work. So I, I can't say one's better than the other. Of right course, now. Yeah.
0: I get it do they control for other variables such as diet sleep stress management
2: no those things are extremely difficult to control for and because a lot of it is subjective they're very difficult difficult to measure we're getting into wellness now which is in my mind a journey and not a destination you're you're, we're always chasing wellness we could always sleep better we could always eat better uh, we can always be mindful better so those are hard variables to to necessarily control for in in research right we don't have
4: good longitudinal Trials on a lot of this stuff, right? A lot of it's Correct. cross-sectional and and observational. But we right? all think it's yeah, really important. Yeah, even so though it still it, sleep it's is incredibly yeah, yeah, important to, yeah, yeah. to
2: how we behave on yeah. the cardiovascular level, or our yeah. mindfulness, how are our yeah. stress levels, how are we <laughs> handling the day to day These are all really important. Right. But those
4: effect sizes are hard to to measure in terms
2: of such tendency unless that, that's, you have that's exactly those, right. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally.
0: So what would be what would be a good way for Athletes in general to take better care of their health of their heart. Yeah, heart health. The, the so
2: the the first and foremost thing we always tell people is an athlete should listen to his or her body. If an athlete has symptoms, and this is true for anybody, but since we're speaking to an athletic population, if an athlete has symptoms, they need to be taken seriously because athletes, on the most part, tend to be people who want to push through things, who who want to sure. keep going. You know, if you have knee pain, if you have shoulder pain, we, we tend to want to push through those things, and and that's fine. But when we're talking about cardiovascular symptoms, we really want to pay attention to those. So if you have chest pain, disproportionate, inappropriate shortness of breath, palpitations, if your performance level is suddenly declining for reasons that you can't necessarily figure out, if you faint or feel like you're going to faint while you're working out, and I get the power lifters you know, oftentimes will feel sort of lightheaded at the end of a really heavy lift, yeah. pay attention to those symptoms the American Heart Association has this thing called know your numbers for everybody, but I think it's relevant to the to this population as well. Know your blood pressure, know your cholesterol, know what your blood sugar control is like, and be aware that those things can then lead to cardiovascular disease. If your blood pressure is not controlled, if you have significantly elevated cholesterol, if, if your blood sugar is off the charts, if you're not eating well, that can put you at risk for cardiovascular disease later on. And then one thing that often really gets overlooked, but is incredibly important, is family history. So again, exercise is not immune therapy. There's a guy out there named Jim Fix. I don't know if you guys have all heard about him before. Jim Fix wrote The Complete Book of Running. Um, He found running, thought it was the greatest thing in the world. It was his religion. It it was his temple. And he was found dead on a trail in his 60s, and everyone said it was running. that killed him. But if you go back and look at his history, he had a terrible family history of coronary artery disease, blockage in the heart arteries. He was overweight, he drank, and he smoked. So those (laughs) things caught up to him. And, And I would say maybe the running kept him alive longer than he would have been. And otherwise, as opposed to the opposite. People are arguing it was the running that killed him. So he was a lifelong runner, but he was overweight. <clears throat> so he wasn't lifelong. He picked uh, it up. He, he, uh, found, yeah. he found Jesus later on, you know, the, <laughs> the Jesus of running later. And um, you can't, As again, I'm going to mention Aaron Baggish, you can't undo the carefree 20s yeah. and 30s that mm. if you didn't exercise, you smoke, you drank, you didn't take care of yourself, that that still can have risk factors sure. for it's you later on. So, but yeah. Yeah. if you have a family history of coronary disease, if you have a family history of heart disease, if somebody in your family died suddenly without a cause. Mm -hmm. These are things that can maybe be part of your history as well. And if that is important to you, if you're concerned about your cardiovascular health, then you should speak to somebody about that.
0: Mm -hmm. Sorry, go ahead.
1: uh, You just touched on it briefly, but things like um, athletes getting lightheaded after lifts and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Uh, there are some athletes in, uh, powerlifting and Olympic weightlifting. We all know Milka Tokola in Olympic weightlifting who are notorious for passing out all the time. Yeah. And, uh, it's sort of become like a running joke, uh, in, in the sport and everyone's like, oh, there he goes again. But, uh, it sounds like this is something that he should be taking seriously and maybe we shouldn't be laughing at. And as another follow-up question, what are some symptoms that people should be looking for in strength sports that
2: are. You know, red flags. So, to your first point, um, power, when, when let's say we're going to deadlift 500 pounds. You're, you're going to deadlift a significant amount of weight. When you do that, you're clenching all the muscles in your chest, your entire body. You're really bearing down. In, in our world, we call this a Valsalva maneuver. We're increasing our intrathoracic pressures, the pressures within our chest, significantly. Normally, when we breathe in, actually, those pressures go down and there's a suction effect that we suck blood back into our hearts and into our lungs to get oxygen. When we breathe, breathe out, that pressure goes up a little bit. But when we're lifting a significant amount of weight, we're really bearing down. Think about a woman pushing out a baby, same thing. We're, we're bearing down significantly. When we do that, the pressures inside of our lungs and on the right side of our heart go up significantly. And what can happen is we have a very difficult time getting blood forward. And if we can't get blood forward, our brain doesn't get good blood flow. And when that happens, we feel lightheaded and dizzy. It's sort of evolutionary. And that our brain says, oh, not getting enough blood flow. I'm going to make you pass out. So all of a sudden, the heart does not have to fight against gravity any longer and now mm-hmm. we're on the same level and i don't have to worry about this anymore so again this this is one of those cool things with athletes like power lifters are a different population so maybe it's completely appropriate that, that this lifter is passing out after every lift and but you also
0: have the barbell right on your neck correct, yeah, <laughs> correct. Yeah, correct. Weight yeah, weight yeah there can be um,
2: vagal hormone stimulation yeah. that causes it. there's a lot of different things that go into that I, yeah. if this person is concerned then you know certainly should be worked up but i i could see how that would be an appropriate thing That's somebody would pass out after, you know, lifting a really significant amount of weight. Um, every athlete is individual, though. If somebody didn't pass out before and now is all of a sudden passing out when they're doing, you know, significant lifting, well, that that's concerning to me, which touches on your second point. So again, if an athlete has significant chest pain, discomfort, burning, stinging, stabbing, pressure, anything of that sort while they're doing their activity, that, that's a concern. Again, I'm going to focus on this disproportionate or abnormal shortness of breath. All athletes are short of breath when they work out, but if it's becoming normal or unusual, that's a concern. Passing cool. out. Go ahead, please. Now wouldn't yeah.
0: you say it'd be useful for people to not wait for the symptoms to appear to to have a cardio consultation yeah. and do it semi-frequently.
2: Yeah, I, I'm biased in that, but yeah, you know, I think it's important for everybody to be concerned with their heart health, but a lot of people want to stay away. And, and, and that's true of athletes and that's true of the general population as well. It, yes. When you have symptoms, you should certainly react to them. But if you have those personal histories, those family histories, if your blood pressure is elevated, if your cholesterol is elevated, then yeah, maybe it makes sense to be proactive at that point. Yeah, I, I think a lot of the time athletes don't interact well with the medical community as Because they're not recognized as athletes, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so when people come to see us, we 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 will spend an hour with them. We talk as much about training and nutrition and sleep and hydration and electrolytes as we do the symptoms that the athlete's having. So, the one of the most important things an athlete has is his or her identity as an athlete, and you know. Mm -hmm that That can be something that dissuades athletes from interacting with the medical community and people in general. I mean, we need to do a better job in the medical world as a whole for the population of being able to identify with our patients better,
0: yeah, yeah. I think you hit the nail right in the head. I think um one of the things that that makes people not go to the doctor, especially athletes, is the fact that you feel like you're not going to be understood or that they're not going to understand what segment population you are. yeah I think we we all here have had experiences yeah. with different doctors that we go to that for an injury or for whatever reason you tell them you're an athlete and just the person just totally doesn't understand i have a story with my um with my gynecologist she switched me on, on uh, my birth control and she actually prescribed something that's like the worst for athletes mm-hmm. and she was pretty much you know, guaranteeing that nothing that, that it was the, my best option in any way it ended up being yeah. horrible like the worst thing i ever did yeah
1: so it really affected your training, my training
0: yeah it was horrible i life. lost like 10 strength in all my lifts so we, we see that often,
2: actually. So a lot of the reason why people will find us, and, and we get people from all over the state and, and even into the Caribbean, is that they go to their doctor, and one of their biggest questions, especially a symptomatic athlete, is, can I keep doing what I love? Am I, am I able to do this safely? Am I going to die when I'm out there on the road? Am I going to die in the gym when I'm doing powerlifting? And the person with whom they're talking, not to their discredit, it, it's it's just a difficult question to answer, can't answer that. It, it's a difficult discussion yeah. to have. And. Yeah much like you wouldn't come to me for gynecologic issues, somebody wouldn't maybe necessarily go to a general cardiologist who doesn't see a lot of athletes. So we're fortunate in that regard. The medicines we give people from a cardiac perspective can sometimes be very, have negative impacts on our athletes. So we we have to choose very specific medications in our athletic population because certain ones won't, the, the athlete won't tolerate well and will have significant side effects for. So those are things like beta blockers yeah. or the non-dihydropyramine calcium channel blockers. Um, I always say that's just sort of like Putting a curtain over an athlete's eyes, the athlete's going to feel terrible if mm. I give them those kind of medications. Yeah. Um, and um, we just have to be, you know, careful with how we we think about athletes, how we treat them. It is a different population than than the rest of the cardiac world. Yeah. Sure. I had a
0: conversation with um, one of the, the the doctors at the mm-hmm. wellness center at UM, which mm-hmm. is where I went to school. I was having really bad competition anxiety, and I was just rambling. Like I'm just telling her, "Oh yeah, I was at a meet, and I almost had a panic attack. I was so nervous." And she re- she prescribed me beta blockers. Yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> for the meet, and yeah. I'm like,
0: "You do realize that I'm gonna have 500 pounds on my back." You're going to need to be sympathetically aroused. Correct.
2: Right? And so crazy. What I we've mean. heard the athletes being told at that point is, well, you're not dead. Don't worry about it. And, and yeah. So if I take lifting away from you, if you take running and cycling away from me, if we take lifting away from you, you know, that that's going to be terrible. I've had somebody say, if you take my bike away, you might as well just bury me now because we have to – Exercise is the healthiest thing anybody can do. And I don't care what sport it is. If you do something, you are putting yourself in a better position than if you're doing nothing. Well, yeah. But, but specifically sorry. for this population, we can't we we should find every reason we can to get people performing at the levels they want to being as healthy as they can and as safe as they can doing it because taking lifting away from you taking these sports away from us would be terrible I mean what that would do to our psyche what that would do uh, to our interpersonal relationships and and then uh, in in so much as how we we would live how well we would live it would go significantly down our quality of life would go away so we have to make strides to keep our athletes doing what they want to do and and doing it at a high quality and I think that
3: must give you a lot of credit ability with your patient population that you are a practice-what-you-preach type of guy. You just did the Miami Half Marathon. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's you're, amazing. you're I mean, that you're an day. athlete yourself, so that yeah. must. I mean, how does that yeah. contribute to when you're
2: having these conversations with these patients? I, I think the most important thing any type of healthcare practitioner can do is build a rapport with his or her patients. And, and it, it is a very intimate encounter. People are telling us things that they don't tell anybody else in their lives. And it helps when you can identify with the person sitting across from you. So the reason I fell into all of this, I played baseball in college, and, and then what Once that ended, um, I became an endurance athlete, which is always funny to me because I'm really bad at it,
0: Um, but I love it. It, It's
2: what gives me peace of mind. It's cheaper than a psychiatrist, and it's my motivation outside of my family and and my work, and um, I'm able to, I I hope, connect with the people that I speak with, the people who come with cardiovascular concerns because it's a concern personally for me. I want to exercise at the levels I want to at at very high levels and do it safely, and I'm hopefully able to impart my passion for that in, in the people who are with us. We, we can't talk about the Miami half anymore. It was a really bad day. <laughs> Fair so, <enough>. yeah. <laughs> really? Why? Oh, God. Oh, man. When you take a kid from the north and put him down here does his first road race in <laughs> humid, sunny weather with wind, uh, it just doesn't go well. So, <laughs> nobody's allowed to look up my time or anything. It, it's just bad. bad, bad day. <laughs>
0: I'm looking up your time. No,
2: no, 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 no. <laughs> you used to run half marathons also. Yeah. Oh, God. I was a minute to a minute and a half slower than what I train at with the caveat that I'm 6'5", 240 pounds. That's and cool. And a us. really bad endurance I athlete. Mean, that
0: all athlete. sounds like excuses. I'm not going to uh, make it an
2: excuse. Yes, totally. <laughs>
0: I'm not gonna tell you my time
2: because I, <laughs> no, I, I don't want to embarrass you. No, I don't want. Please don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> I'm still having nightmares about it. But great race. I, it was a lot of fun to do. But uh, we can do better. And you can only go mm, up from here. Next that's year. exactly right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But um, I think. Yeah. Uh, what you're ge- <laughs> I'm sweating now. Thanks. <laughs> yeah.
4: I think what we're getting at, like from the yeah. physician's perspective, a lot of times it's just easier when people have some sort of elevated risk, and and the physician wants to avoid a bad outcome, they just say, don't do that thing that yeah. might contribute to that bad outcome but that only works if you see yourself as the physician as the person who fights disease in some abstract sense and is not someone who cares for a person and their and their lived experience uh, right uh, yeah. uh right if if part of their valuable experience is their experience of their sport then you need to you need to accommodate for that. Yeah. Well, you need to accommodate for that. And since you have that, you know, that, and you can work that into your life. But a lot, I think a lot of physicians don't, don't see one, their, their, their role in society that way two see disease that way. And three, kind of see people that way. Can I, can I
0: piggyback off that and ask you a question Um, in terms of assessment, evaluation and treatment? How does your practice, your clinical practice differ from a general cardio? So, um,
2: I think just by the, the population that's coming in the athletic population, it, it's automatically different. And, uh, we, we have to understand our athletes. So how I would understand a group of power is very different than how I would speak to a marathoner, and, and how I would understand the marathon runner. It's different psyche. It's different motivation. The, the motivation of an athlete, I think is one and the same, especially people who do so at high levels. Um, not necessarily the fastest times or, or the strongest people, but if you're motivated to do that, there's a fire that burns inside of you that makes you want to compete and get better and get stronger. That's the mindset of an athlete. And me as a sports cardiologist, I I try to attack my day as an athlete every single day. So my mindset when I wake up in the morning is I'm either going to get better today or I'm going to get worse. I'm either going to make Mm. people better or I'm going to make them worse. And if an athlete comes in as symptomatic, I try to be relentless in my care for them in that we are going to attack this, we are going to get after it until we have an answer until you feel better, and until we have a plan, occasionally we swing and miss. So occasionally there are things that are not cardiovascular. Occasionally there there are things that we just may not have an answer for. But you know we're we're going to try our darndest to, to get there and, and be relentless in that attack in that pursuit. While well, too often people are told, much like one of the cyclists that, that we saw, well at least you're not dead. And that that that's not satisfactory to me. No. We we have yeah. to get to the bottom that's of it. That's a low bar. Well, (laughs) I wouldn't say it's a low bar. Again, this is not to discredit anybody out there. Again, you wouldn't come to me for any OB-GYN issue. So people come to us because we we have a sports cardiology program, which is unique. And so when an athlete has concerns about his or her heart, we want to be relentless in attacking those. So So let's
0: say Ian walks through your door.
2: Okay. Can he fit through the door? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sideways. Sideways. Sideways? (laughs) Okay, good. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So he walks through your door and whatever he has, like, say one symptom, shortness of breath. Mm -hmm. Bring. Walking, mm-hmm. what are the wait, wait, wait?
5: Let's use a real symptom. <laughs> that is
0: real. What you know, symptom you? I'm have? never
5: short of breath. You guys are more short of breath than I am. <laughs> you're more short of breath. Ben walked in the office yesterday and he was like, Oh, I just did a crossfit workout.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, crossfit. yeah, you're allowed like, to be
1: short of breath, and that's there. Okay, so okay, let,
5: what's your symptom? let's say I walk in the door and I say, Um, look, doc, I, I feel fine, but I started monitoring my blood pressure and I've noticed that it's anywhere from 140 to 150 over 70 to 80 and i I exercise i do lift weights i do a lot of you know i do cardiovascular exercise as well for people tell me it's healthy um i eat a very healthy diet lots of potassium lots of um you know i'm very hydrated uh i would consider myself pretty healthy overall i've gotten lab work done my thyroid panel's normal Mm -hmm. like everything's pretty normal for the most part um you know is there anything i can do to Decrease my blood pressure. Uh, what are the long-term ramifications of that? Like, where do we go from here? Is yeah. there
2: any other testing you can do, or, yeah, or yeah. tools you can use? Mm-hmm. So every athlete who comes to see us is going to get an EKG straight away. So an EKG, an EKG? A, yeah, an EKG, or <laughs> twelve little stickers we put on the chest. We attach, we um, attach electrodes to those those stickers, and uh, we are able to see. Um, number one, the heart rhythm. We're able to see if there's any signs of chamber enlargement, and and this is with the caveat that EKGs are very different. In, in well trained athletes than the general population. So it takes somebody well versed and well trained in the EKG of an athlete to understand what's normal and what's abnormal. Uh, we'll spend a significant amount of time talking about the things that Ian just mentioned diets, uh, exercise, what type of exercise are you doing? It's most important to me to know immediately what sport the athlete participates in because I frame it differently, how I'll talk to that athlete, how I'll think about that athlete that athlete will then get a physical exam. So I, I listen to the heart, I listen to the carotid arteries, the lungs, I, I'll, I'll check the muscle tone, et cetera, and, and really do a full cardiovascular exam at that point in time. We may decide on getting some blood work. One thing I do in a, a lot of our athletes is something called a cardiopulmonary stress test. So when people think of stress test, they think of getting on the treadmill, going, the doctor tells them you've reached the heart rate, stop, you're good to go. <laughs> in our athletes, we, we do. I always call it like the Gatorade test where you see people with the Masks on and mm. they're really pushing themselves. Think Ivan Drago and, and Rocky mm-hmm. Four. Mm-hmm. So we do a maximal cardiopulmonary stress test where I will push the athlete until he or she can no longer go. You'll we'll take us up to a limit that we would potentially see what's, regularly. Oh, I, I'm pushing you to the limit where you cannot go anymore. Yeah, like where, where you're telling me, Eli, enough, stop sure, it. Sure. What, yeah. What's a typical protocol for that? So I was test? considering going there, to there see you. There is no, yeah, yeah that, that's a great choice. question. By now, by now. There is no typical protocol. <laughs> I so, okay. how, I, let, let's say one of you, let's say Ian to my right Mm. is a marathon runner. So Mm. I'm going to test you differently than than strength-based Ian over here because you guys are participating in different sports. If Ian's Mm -hmm. having symptoms when he lifts weights Mm -hmm. at at high levels and I put him on a treadmill, I'm not going to be able to recreate the symptoms he's having versus let's say you you ride a bicycle Mm -hmm. and I put you on a treadmill, I'm I'm not recreating it. So we want to test our athletes in the sport that he or she does. And that can be challenging sometimes because it's really hard for me to test swimmers, but you want to try to recreate it. And if that means means me coming out of the office hours and coming to your place of training and seeing the symptoms you're having and trying to grab an EKG on the spot or a blood pressure or see what's going on, then so be it. If I need to go for a run with one of my athletes, well, hopefully he or she's slow like I am. Um, <laughs> but if not, you know, I'm going to try to keep up and again, try to recreate those symptoms so I can see. And then then we have fancier testing. So in the, the case of high blood pressure, an echocardiogram, that, that's an ultrasound of the heart. we can. Th- that's indicated for anybody who has high blood pressure. We can do those things. We have cardiac MRI, which is an MRI of the heart. It, it's a fantastic test. We get tons of information from that if it is indicated. We can do Holter monitoring, so we can actually put electrodes on the chest, send the athlete out, mm. and have them exercise with these continuous monitors on. And it records the data. Yeah, but it, it really depends on exactly the, the symptoms the athlete has, it, which helps me to dictate the testing yeah um i have another hypothetical for you totally interested in Uh, let's say
1: somebody like ian uh who has been a strength athlete um and has experienced some of the cardio adaptations that strength athletes do Mm -hmm. comes in and they say you know i'm shifting my focus from something this is something that comes up commonly Mm -hmm. you see at the end of people's powerlifting careers Mm -hmm. where they say i want to shift my focus from optimal training to optimal or optimal performance to optimal health Mm -hmm. Is there a sweet spot somewhere between the sedentary, you know, gen pop and the elite athlete where we can like prescribe a certain level of intensity, volume, uh, you know, frequency of training and training type? Is Is there like a sort of like a one size
2: fits all like safety? Yeah. of training. That's, that's not 150
0: training. minutes of physical activity a week. So yeah, <laughs> fantastic <laughs> so question. So ridiculous.
2: let me step away from Ian for a second. So the, the sweet spot actually is getting people who do nothing to get them to do something. So uh-huh. I'll touch on, you know, the, the person who's already been doing it and maybe wants to shift, but um, the more we get people who come to our clinic mm-hmm. who know that we spend a lot of time with exercise and they just want to learn how to exercise. The exercise is important mm-hmm. to them but they just haven't been able to find it. So if we can get people from doing something to nothing the bang for the buck is huge actually, but there can be what we call diminishing returns in that, that people who exercise at extremes for long periods in time for years and years and years mm-hmm. are not gonna necessarily be healthier physically in terms of cardiovascular risk than those who are meeting the guidelines. Mm-hmm. stuff, like you just mentioned, 150 minutes of moderate intensity per week, or 75 minutes of high intensity those are like the guidelines that, that exist out there but you know i think those people who want to do so at the extremes maybe for their own psyche for their own personal reasons they're healthier that way because of it but cardiovascularly they're, they're not going to there's only so much juice you can squeeze out of the fruit at that point mm. in time so now, now to your example um there are people um, who are strength-based athletes who have cardiovascular disease? Who I counsel to not do that anymore, and, and the reason being is because we see that the blood pressure is a little bit high. We sure. see we're having difficulty titrating medications, and I am not telling them cut the weights or the strength-based training out cut altogether because I think strength training is really good for bones and brain. That's been proven with research and cardiovascular fitness as well. But maybe I don't want them to be 300 pounds anymore, deadlifting 500 pounds, and you know really pushing themselves because I know that that could cause some significant heart. In somebody who already has established diagnoses mm. and somebody who just exactly. wants to shift their training, you know, it, it's really individualized. We, we have to have the discussion. What are the risk factors? Where are you right now? How do you feel? What are your goals? And then, you know, I can work with them to, to maybe come up with suggestions and ideas to help optimize health while still factoring in the things that are really important to them. Mm. Because if I take a strength-based athlete and say, you're going to be a marathon runner, that, that may not work very well because that okay. that sport may not speak to that athlete. We, we want to find things that are cardiovascular based for strength-based athletes. Cause that, that, that may sort of be like speaking a different language to a strength-based athlete. We we have to make our programs work. We have to make our treatment plans work for, for the person in front of us. It's a very individualized approach that takes sort of the science of medicine and, and delves more into the art of medicine, the one-on-one discussion. Now, when you see those strength athletes that you do have to tell to
3: reel it in or, or tone it down, mm-hmm. are they over your magic 35 number typically, or yes. is it okay yeah
2: typically it's going to be the those who are over the age of 35 but there are younger people who have conditions called like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy which is an abnormal thickness of the heart muscle some people would say it's the leading cause of death in our young athletes although that may not necessarily be true Mm -hmm. Um, lifting very heavy weights doing so at high levels may not be very healthy for people who have that condition there's a condition that we don't see as much in the united states that exists more in europe called arrhythmogenic right ventricular dysplasia Mm -hmm. which is fatty tissue we can to replace the right side of the heart, we know uh, that exercise leads to worsened prognosis with that disease. So these are athletes we have to tell, you know, your, your, your career is over at that point in time. But uh, on, in the same sentence, there is emerging data out there. Again, we are looking for reasons to keep people exercising, not the other way around, trying to get people with established cardiovascular diagnoses out there doing things and, and keeping them active. Traditionally, there were a set of guidelines called the Bethesda criteria that, that would say certain athletes, they're done. They're on the bench. They can't, they can't participate anymore if they have certain cardiovascular diseases. Mm-hmm. We're now shifting more towards a shared decision-making process, which means it's my job to counsel and teach on the diagnosis the athlete has. It's my job to inform what the treatment plan should be and how we should how we should move forward to keep the athlete healthy. But at the same time if exercise is really important to the athlete, that maybe we find a way to keep the athlete doing what he or she loves. Maybe we work with the college or the uni- or the, the high school or um, the professional team to, to keep the athlete out there and competing at high levels in time. You will see more and more athletes in the future participating with implantable cardio defibrillators. Mm-hmm. Defibrillators are a device that goes under the, the skin in the chest or on the side of the chest that can shock the heart if a very dangerous rhythm happens. Uh, Dr. Rachel Lampert out of Yale has done incredible research in this group of patients in particular, showing that they can continue to participate at very high levels and not necessarily have very, very adverse events. They may get shocked by their device, mm-hmm. but they can continue to compete. Nobody in her studies have died actually wow. while participating with a defibrillator. So again, we are moving much, much more towards keeping people out there doing things, but they should do so with counseling and, and with appropriate medical advice that, that we hope is sports cardiology specific. Yeah, Yeah, I want to get to uh, pre-participation screening and your thoughts,
4: um, because right that some people will kind of take what you said and lead to the idea that oh, we should just test everyone before they participate in sport to minimize risk Mm -hmm. of. of cardiac events during sports, but what are what's the advantage to that? Well, obviously there's hurdles in terms of costs and training and, yes. and logistics, but there's also other hurdles because that assumes a perfect a, a perfect test. Mm-hmm. Um, so, can you kind of totally. explain your thoughts so, on it?
2: Um, the pre-participation screening of, of athletes is, a, as you mentioned, a very mm-hmm. controversial subject. Mm-hmm. And we most often encounter this in things like high schools, middle schools, colleges, uh, and then on the professional level as well, where an organization wants their athletes to be tested to ensure that they don't, they don't have underlying cardiovascular disease that could put them at risk for an adverse cardiac event during exercise or, or, or immediately after. So um, the guidelines right now currently suggest for these groups in particular, that these are the American guidelines, that all an athlete needs to do is a history and a physical, meaning we should ask a a predetermined set of questions. Mm. The American Heart Association Mm. has like the 14-point questionnaire and and, and exam, and that should be sort of the end of it at that point. Mm. There are recommendations coming out that says an EKG can be used. Now, Mm. an EKG can be a very beneficial tool but it can also be a very dangerous tool as well. We, we touched on it earlier that the EKG of an athlete is different than that of the the general population. And we have guidelines that tell us exactly what that EKG, what what's normal in an EKG for an athlete and what's abnormal. And then there are these things called borderline criteria.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So if... We, we will have hour long discussions, two hour long discussions with groups that want to embark on this so that they can understand the benefits of it. They can understand the risks of it and, and the alternatives. And um, the worst thing that can happen is that an athlete gets an abnormal result on a screening EKG and then get stuck sort of in purgatory, that they have this abnormal result, but they Mm -hmm. can't get follow-up. Or the EKG was misinterpreted by somebody who's not familiar with looking at an EKG of an athlete. They've been labeled as abnormal. Their career has been ended when maybe it was normal for them uh, to begin with. So Mm -hmm. these are very challenging discussions to have. Some organizations mandate EKG screening. Some organizations mandate EKG and echoes as well, ECHO being an ultrasound of the heart. Some mandate nothing at all. It, It really comes down to the stakeholders, the athletes, the coaches, the athletic trainers, um, and, and the, the administration of whatever organization we're talking about, and then moving forward from there. So, Some people may decide to embark on this individually. Mm-hmm. When that happens, I think they should be counseled on, the again, the risks, benefits, and alternatives of such. And you want to make sure, especially if you're an athlete, going to somebody who's very familiar with the cardiovascular testing in athletes, because the, the differences don't just stop at the EKG. The echocardiogram can look different in an athlete. The cardiac MRI can look different. There are certain heart rhythm uh, disturbances, something called Mobitz type one, second degree heart block. Everybody hears that, oh my God, heart block, that can't be good. It's completely normal in an endurance athlete. So you you just have to be careful with the testing we do. And and we have to use it appropriately and with appropriate then follow up afterwards. That if something becomes abnormal, it's very important to me personally that that athlete gets triaged very quickly. Mm -hmm. Because the worst thing you can do is hold an athlete as we've talked about before holding an athlete out of his or her sport that can have significant psychological impacts yeah.
4: what's the biggest thing that you see that's misinterpreted as a cardiomyopathy that's, not, that's actually like a normal physiologic yeah. adaptation exercise yeah. induced cardiac yeah. remodeling okay. in, in the endurance like, oh, population So, the, yeah there are two Okay,
2: <laughs> the, the eccentric cardiac remodeling eccentric left ventricular hypertrophy this dilated chamber dilated mm. atria in our endurance population and then more to this conversation the strength based athletes there's this thing called the great zone where in a strength-based athlete's heart can begin to sort of look like this thing called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy mm. which is that abnormal thickening of the heart that, that can cause sudden cardiac uh, arrest sudden cardiac death that gray zone where athletic remodeling in a strength-based athlete overlaps with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy can be very difficult there's a debate out there if somebody looks that way especially if they're having symptoms and we're not sure or they've had sub- they've had testing for screening purposes that maybe we stop an athlete we we do what's called detraining, where i say to that athlete you do nothing for three months (laughs) you you don't lift you don't exercise you come back and then we re-image the heart to see like if you stop lifting if you stop doing bicep curls your your bicep muscle will get small yeah you'll get atrophy we can see the same thing with the heart that if it is training induced the heart will regress and it'll become thinner. So, th- some people have argued that that's a really good thing to do. But if an athlete comes to me and they have some of those um, findings that could suggest hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but their blood pressure is really high, again, blood pressure is the weight that the heart pumps against. Then maybe I need to control blood pressure. Maybe the heart can can look differently based on that. Mm-hmm. So, those are the two categories. And again, it's yeah. it's very challenging. Yeah. You have to spend a lot of time in the nitty gritty there, and yeah. um, it, it can be. That's one of the biggest challenges I face as a sports cardiologist. I'll just, yeah.
0: Can we uh, briefly touch on the topic of performance-enhancing drugs and Absolutely. anabolic steroids and the changes that uh, take Place in the
2: heart. Yeah, um, potential
5: so exacerbations it, of those things. Yeah, so. anabolic
2: steroid use has been linked to uh, increased onset, increased prevalence uh, of coronary artery disease, so blockage in the heart's arteries. Um, so we, we want to avoid anabolic steroid use. I, I played baseball in the in the steroid era, so yeah, teammates were throwing desks out of windows, the whole thing. I got lots of stories. That's for another podcast. Um, but you know, we we want to avoid you know um, anabolic steroids for sure. I see a lot of people on testosterone down here, which I didn't see back up north in Pittsburgh where I came from. Quote-unquote therapeutically. Yeah, quote-unquote therapeutically. It is the Mecca. You know, To me, in my practice, it is a very narrow window of people who actually need that medication. Um, so we, <clears> the, the saying goes, and, and I tell this to everybody is, don't put things in your body if you don't need them. So you want to have a conversation with your physician of why are you giving me this? Why should I be on it? What, what's the intended outcome? And why is it getting, why, why are we using it? So there was a nice review in in the cardiology literature recently that, that documented the testosterone use. And again, I'm fixating on that just because I I see it so much down here and really the recommendations for it are are not very strong. Yes, there are people who absolutely need it, but we have to be careful. Um, One thing that You know, this may be controversial in terms of public opinion, but I think scientific opinion, it's pretty good, is is that these energy drinks, so uh, Red Bull, Monster, Rockstar, five-hour energy we got to be really careful with those, especially in an environment like this, where these energy drinks increase body temperature, they increase the propensity for arrhythmias. So I I try to tell all of our athletes to really avoid that. Now, if you want to have a cup of coffee, 30 minutes or an hour before you're going to work out that that's fine. There's no increased health risk that comes with that. And there may be a health benefit. If you believe all of the coffee literature out there, what (laughs) would
5: you say to the guy that likes to take two scoops of pre-workout and three to 500 milligrams of caffeine? I I would say, how
2: long do you have to hear about some the folks who've had heart rhythm disturbances and you know racing heartbeats and you know poor it, performance actually, from that. Yeah, it's concerning
1: to hear that because yeah. we have a sponsorship at the gym <laughs> with Monster Energy. So Sorry, our, our, uh, not, nothing against Monster, but the uh, the fridge is always stocked and it's always available. So people will just walk by there, and a lot of us are guilty of it—just drinking that stuff like it's water. Before you know it, by the end of the day, you're a thousand milligrams plus of, or more, you know, of caffeine. And yeah, it, it's not it's my job. I, I don't want to
2: take on the energy drink industry. I mean, they're, they're probably going to come looking for me soon. But I, I, I have anecdotes of me doing CPR on people at the end of races. I, I used to be a medical director for the Pittsburgh Marathon. And kids, kids, I mean, 31 years old, younger than me who had cardiac arrest at the end of the race because they were chugging Red Bulls. So oh, what? It, what I am most passionate about is keeping athletes healthy, keeping them doing what they love at high levels. And to me, this this is not to you know, rag on your sponsorship deal at all. These energy drinks don't help us. It's been studied. Do you know what the only thing you need after a strength-based workout is to help you recover? chocolate, chocolate milk. milk chocolate milk yeah. good old chocolate milk that, that's all you need if you've done an endurance-based workout and have sweat a lot do you know what you need after that, that workout a, a banana yeah. just a banana <laughs> that may constipate you a little bit more but the mother nature gave us all the tools that, that we really need we just have to be careful with how we fuel our bodies because it can have effects down the line it, we work with the Fort Lauderdale SWAT in, in getting their their guys ready for SWAT school. They will be the first ones to tell you. They, they have a lot of energy drinks. They know it may not be the best things for them, but they're doing it. One of them shared with me that he had heart issues related to it now needs to see a cardiologist all the time. Wow. So we, we just have to be careful. The, the same way we all take so much care into our training, how we prepare, how, how we train our bodies to then compete. I, I you have to fuel it the same way you have to sleep. All of
5: these things go into it. I remember- one of the previous hospitals I worked at up in uh, West Palm, we had a 16 or 17 year old come into the ICU because he took I think four scoops of pre workout before yeah. training, and he had like uncontrollable tachycardia, mm-hmm. yeah. and, and they thought he was going to potentially arrest or go into um, like VFib or something yeah. because of it.
2: Yeah, no, we we all have anecdotes like that, and um, it. it- it's my job to inform and and to make sure people understand what they're doing. It's not my job to make decisions for anybody. Mm -hmm. I'm an educator first. I'm a scientist, you know, I'm I'm a big nerd. And so I I want people to understand how they feel their body. It's the same way we talk about when an athlete comes, what are you eating? What's Mm -hmm. breakfast? What's lunch? What's dinner? Are you using energy drinks, especially for somebody who may be having symptoms or high blood pressure? It's important to understand how that will affect your body. Sometimes people don't make that connection. They're like, Oh, I drink,
4: you know, all three of my favorite brands of energy drink a day. So I don't drink one, I don't drink three monsters. I drink a Red Bull, a monster and a bang and a five hour energy. And I, you know, and and I have these heart symptoms. I don't know if, you know, (laughs) they might not like you have to tell
2: me they're related right before I even... People even connect those dots correct you know? yeah no absolutely <laughs> but um to sort of tangent off of that the, the same way how we fuel the body you know, how do we sleep how do we recover at night we know sleep is becoming more and more mm. important in, in terms of how the body functions how we recover how we prepare for the next day these things cell phones ipads mm. um they can mess with our minds actually so my three-year-old son was using the iPad before bed as we were putting our daughter to bed. And he wouldn't go to sleep for an hour and a half afterwards. His mind was just stimulated by all of this. So it really, we, we shut it off. He goes right to sleep immediately now, hopefully. Sometimes it doesn't happen as easily. But um, you know these things stimulate us. They, they they get our minds sort of on go, just the light that gets yeah. emitted from the phone. And the phone companies have recognized that because they're putting in these the blue light filters. Light. They're putting yeah. in the timers for how often you're intera- interacting with it. All of it is relevant to me as a sports cardiologist because they can all lead to cardiovascular symptoms so i, I yeah.
5: personally notice when i'm well slept around nine hours a night which is like my sweet spot because yeah. i'm training hard versus like six to seven hours a night on occasion if i'm monitoring my blood pressure every day i'm noticing like a 10 to 15 point um difference in blood pressure mm-hmm. i'll be i'll be 15 points higher on yeah. a night that i'm underslept versus yeah. being less stressed well slept Um, Can you talk about some of the, as far as like for our audience, like practical takeaways go, can you talk about like lifestyle modifications and and dietary modifications? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people listening that don't have the most ideal diet that they could. And that contributes to either hypertension or potential cardiovascular risk.
2: Yeah, this gets into this topic of wellness, uh, mm-hmm. which is just such a buzzword sure, yeah, right sure. now. And wellness, again, I, I said it before, it is a journey, it is not a destination. Mm-hmm. You don't arrive there and you're done. I think <laughs> as, as we get older and, and our lives change, this is a battle we're always gonna fight to hit our wellness. So mm-hmm. in general, the, I don't know that this is necessarily as necessarily is applicable to the athlete population. The healthiest diets out there are things like the Mediterranean diet mm-hmm. from a cardiovascular perspective, uh, vegetarian, vegan, th- mm-hmm. these are things Things that have tangible cardiovascular benefits, mm-hmm. um, but the sport an athlete participates in, they're going to have to increase their calories. They're going to have to change mm-hmm. what he or she is eating in order mm-hmm. to meet the demands of their body. Mm-hmm. Um, sleep is incredibly important to all of this. So, the, in order to get the best sleep, they say to sleep at sixty three or sixty four degrees in, mm-hmm. in the room. Um, <laughs> <a, a> really, <laughs> I don't want to pay that power bill down here, but um, you know, a very dark room to make sure you get the highest sleep quality. Um, Something that I'll throw in there, which maybe doesn't get a lot of publicity is random acts of kindness. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just helping people out randomly, being a good citizen, interacting with communities, um, being a good neighbor, being a good friend. (laughs) Yeah, no, random acts of kindness, I think are a really good thing. I a good friend. Yeah, so there's a a sports cardiologist in, in Oregon named James Beckerman, who has this program called Heart to Start, where it's a community of people who get together. They're not necessarily athletes before, but they have cardiovascular disease or just want to be healthy. They exercise together. They do community service together. They talk about diet together and they live better because of that. People who engage in charity work feel better right. and live better. So I'm increasingly talking about this in terms of that wellness mm-hmm. topic that, that we have. So, you know, if you see somebody and they need help crossing the street, help them do it. It's going to make you feel better. If somebody needs help loading their groceries, do these kinds of things. It, yeah. Is it still a pretty. I'm sure
5: there's a there's a lot of myths out there when when it comes to people thinking about, you know, what's heart healthy, what's not, is it still a pretty accepted belief that dietary saturated fat and cholesterol intake plays a significant role in heart
2: disease so it's a, it's a risk factor right okay. it's not a risk equivalent but it's a risk factor there are people mm-hmm. out there who have cholesterols of three bad cholesterols of 300 400 who mm-hmm. never have heart disease mm-hmm. there are people who have perfect cholesterols who get tons of heart disease and sure. that, they, it, it's all sort of the interplay in, in genetics it, and, and it, how one works but yes multiple factors yeah right? you like want levels of inflammation
5: because you have to have an irritated endothelium for things to Big word, yeah. It's, yeah. Mu- it's multifaceted
2: yeah. Is, is the the understanding that I've got. We're going to understand inflammation more and more in the years to come. Tons mm-hmm. of research there. Uh, but yes, you, you want to control, if your cardiovascular health is important to you, mm-hmm. you want to watch your diet. You want mm-hmm. to try to eat as heart healthy as possible. Mm-hmm. And you can still do that and get all of the protein you need, especially as a strength-based athlete, mm-hmm. to recover from How the workout you've done. Um, so supplements, I think I haven't met an athlete yet who isn't using supplements. I, I always like the athletes to bring in the supplements show me what they're oh, no, using. I mean,
0: like what supplements should people be using for better cardiovascular health?
2: I think it's an individualized approach you know an athlete has to be ready to use supplements there's stuff out there with vitamin D beetroot juice probably depends on um, what they're lacking citrulline, arginine in, right? yeah but in this country most people who are eating a well-rounded diet are getting all of the nutrients sure. they need okay. there is data out there on some of these supplements increasing performance mm-hmm. again if you're a competitive athlete and you're getting drug tested you need to be exquisitely careful what you're putting in because you never know how that may come out on a drug test later on but it's an individualized approach and and um, there are people Far smarter than me, who can sure. tell you, you know, what supplements are the best sure. or not. But it is something we discuss fairly but, frequently. But it's pretty, it's pretty
5: accepted that increasing your HDL levels is is very healthy. That for does you, it right? decrease
2: your cardiovascular risk? Okay. Having good, having high, good cholesterol. Uh-huh. decreases your risk of having cardiovascular disease and conversely high bad cholesterol yeah. increases your risk so
5: is there anything that you can directly recommend to our listeners to increase their hdl
2: levels so Particularly, I, 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 so your listeners are all exercising that's really good mm-hmm. cardiovascular based exercise mm-hmm. increases hdl levels okay. there is the, the the thought out there that dark chocolate red wine can increase the hdl True. levels as well uh, previously people were taking things like niacin uh-huh. niacin, slow niacin these drugs and, to, and, and yeah. fish oil to increase HDL levels. Our recommendations are sort of moving away from that. That we don't get the bang for the buck. The, the benefit from those types of medicines. For the listeners, longer. can you give a quick definition of HDL versus LDL, or good cholesterol versus bad cholesterol? Yeah, so kind can of you explain is, the role
0: of cholesterol? Absolutely. Well. So
2: cholesterol is something that exists in all of our bodies. It's in the foods we eat. Our body naturally processes it. We use it to make the blood-brain barrier in our in, in our in our brains and, and sort of separating the circulations between the two. Um, the bad cholesterol is the cholesterol that can be taken up into the lumen of the artery. Artery, whether by inflammation or injury, etc., and can begin to form plaques over periods in time. That plaque can be a soft plaque, meaning it's just cholesterol that, that's in the lumen of the artery, or it can become calcified over time as it grows or enlarges or remodels. Um, bad cholesterol is the thing we try to lower, especially people who have cardiovascular disease, which would be LDL. LDL, yes. Mm. HDL is good cholesterol, which helps us to remove the bad cholesterol from our circulation and, and from our system. And we want to increase that as best we can through diet, through exercise, mm-hmm. um, and, and the, the health benefits that uh, come with do that. You, do you, you
4: regularly you, prescribe
2: statins in your practice? Totally. If you talk to cardiologists, yeah, we think they, statin well, should well, be on well. the waters. <laughs> it, we should, statin should be in the water. Yeah. Um, you say the word statin to an athlete, it's saying a four-letter word, just like people telling them they're old. That, that's a four-letter word as well in our practice. Yeah. The statin. Satins are one of the few drugs out there that have significantly modified cardiovascular disease. They decrease the risk of cardiovascular disease in preventing and those who've already have it from having recurrent heart attacks or strokes, et cetera. So statins are really, really good drugs and mm. people want to try to avoid them because society has cast this horrible reputation onto them. The vast majority of people tolerate statins very well. Yeah. W- what does statins do in the body? Statins help to eliminate cholesterol, bad cholesterol okay. from the body and so triglycerides slow, as well. they lower LDL triglycerides? Lower. Yes, yes. yes. Okay. And, and for people who are at risk for heart disease, who have high cholesterol mm-hmm. and meet the guidelines for statins or cholesterol-lowering therapy, or people. Who have established cardiovascular disease, whether heart attack, obstructive mm-hmm. coronary disease, strokes, and other conditions. So, if we what, recommend what, them, what would you
5: like? What would you see that would make you want to prescribe a statin? Like, if you looked at my cholesterol and my LDL was high, yeah. and would that be just Simple enough thing for you to say.
2: All right, let's put you on like a loto statin, or would
0: you try a lifestyle intervention Yeah, well, first? It's an, it,
2: that, that's exactly right. You, you've you've illustrated both points. It, it is an individualized approach. So mm-hmm. if somebody is 25 and mm-hmm. comes in and it's a younger person whose bad cholesterol is up, I will exhaust every lifestyle intervention possible before I put them on sure. a drug, unless there's compelling reason uh, to do so. So there are guidelines yeah. that exist that we know people should be on these medications. Now, like F H, yeah, I, I can't force a medicine down anybody's throat. It's my mm-hmm. job to counsel mm-hmm. and, and participate in that decision-making mm-hmm. process. But yes, there are certain people who are 25 who should be on a, a cholesterol-based medication, a statin. Mm-hmm. But the, the second I put somebody on that kind of medication, for the most part, I'm telling them, this is yours for the rest of your life. So I, we, all cardiologists who see yeah. anybody, whether or not they're an athlete or not, should be talking about lifestyle intervention. So that's huge. Um, but really, the, the population who needs it are the people who have established cardiovascular mm-hmm. diseases, coronary artery disease. Sure. Uh, heart previous heart attack, mm-hmm. elevated cholesterol. And, and there are guidelines and ways that we can figure out who should be on these kinds of medications. I think the reason
0: why people are adverse to taking these types of medications yeah. as opposed to taking any other pill or drug is because once you take that, you're categorized, right? You're Correct. identified. That's exactly right. Or linked to a particular mm. pathology or diagnosis. Yeah. It's like taking an antidepressant, right? Mm-hmm. Now you're a depressed person. Now you're an anxious person. Now you're a person with cardiovascular disease, right? So I think that's what makes people kind of like second guess taking these.
2: In our athletic population we try to frame it as this is a medicine that's going to support you much as your training supports you this is going to support your health and and try to keep you as healthy as possible Mm -hmm. so statins and cholesterol based medications are not today tomorrow kind of medicines they don't they're not going to impact survival tomorrow in 20 years 10 years from now 15 years from now they decrease risk significantly are statins ever contraindicated
5: or will they impact performance in any way so they are (laughs)
2: contraindicated great questions they are contraindicated Mm -hmm. in women who could uh, be of childbearing age so if a woman is on a statin or has reason to be and wants to become pregnant we need to stop the medication because so there's a mild risk on. there no, it's not mild no, it's, it's, a, it's a proven risk yeah okay. so that medication needs to be stopped okay. um athletes specifically endurance athletes do have an increased risk of like having cramps okay. on statins. So that's something we work through sure. in, in council. Sure. So okay. um, there's, I think that's more anecdotal. I, I haven't seen so many endurance yeah. athletes who complain of sort of these cramps that come along with, with the statins. It's hard it does to, to yeah. differentiate non-
4: Statin induced myopathy for statin induced myopathy. Yeah, so, it, people it, overestimate it, the incidence of
2: of muscle pain caused by statin. Correct. Right? Especially in this population, yeah, which yeah. may be medication adverse, anyways, yeah. as Steph so eloquently yeah.
4: illustrated before.
2: Yeah. Because yeah. that's one so thing eat. we talk about a lot is, is, yeah. is,
4: is you know, musculoskeletal pain and, yes. and people's different. And than, what's appropriate yeah, 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 and what isn't. Yeah. 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 So, if you had a strength athlete
5: with a high LDL and a low HDL, it would probably be advisable <laughs> for them to think about potential statin use if their lifestyle was. In a way that you would recommend it potentially.
2: Maybe yeah. again, the, the numbers matter. So, what exactly are the numbers? How old is the athlete? Ian's what are the risk to get factors? A free
0: consultation yeah, no, it's okay. <laughs> He's
2: no. trying to get a statin script. Yeah. Right no, I literally. Market I, this is going to be his
0: this, next question. This
5: phenotype <laughs> is so generalizable across powerlifting. Yeah. And if you were to look at my lab work, which I have a little bit high LDL, a little bit low HDL, I would say that most strength athletes at around an 1800, like a 500 Wilkes or higher, or anyone even using drugs even is going to have much worse blood lipid levels than that. Mm, and yeah. so like, and those aren't going to change as long as those people are still doing those you things. know, those things. So, you know, they would want to look at, you know, all the options and exhaust every option. Cause you know, depending on how long that athlete, wants to compete for and, and do that style of training and lifestyle, you know, they're looking at like a heart attack at 40 to 45, 50 years old versus 60, 70, 80 years old. And so that would be something that they would want to address sooner rather than later, I think.
2: Yeah. And again, individualized approach. It doesn't yeah. mean if you come to us with high cholesterol that we're going to put you on a statin medication right yeah, away. Sure. And, and this is why, especially in our world, it can't be just like a 15-minute, 20-minute appointment. Yeah. We, we have to delve into the details of the diet, yeah. of the training, sure. uh, of the family history. All of these things matter mm-hmm. because then they sort of lead to the, the, the treatment plan. how, mm-hmm. how are we going to proceed going forward? Mm-hmm. We have blanket guidelines for the population, but we have to apply them individually and mm-hmm. it's not a one-size fits-all sure. uh, process, right. much like you know for athletes, it's not no two athletes are the same. Mm-hmm. Everyone's a little bit different.
0: Eli, yeah, like before we wrap it up, yeah. can you tell me a little bit about the future of uh, therapies? Yeah. like what are we looking at in the next five, 10, 15 years? And how how are those technologies going to change?
2: Sure. So uh, first, I think hopefully we're going to continue to get more athlete-specific data. So how the cardiovascular conditions we see in athletes are impacted by the sport the athlete does, how the treatment modalities we use may be impacted based on the athlete that we're applying them to. So we will get more and more athlete-specific data. I think wearables are going to be a huge category where mm-hmm. we're going to see a ton of growth. I mean, we're seeing it exponentially every single yeah, year. A- Apple Watch. Yeah, a- I a- see a- an a- Apple Watch. A- I wear a garment. A- you know, every, everyone's- I mean, We mean, both you know, have bits. Yeah, every, everybody sort of wears their own device. Right now, that data is not- Yet clinically significant, there's a lot of promise out there for monitoring for rhythm problems mm. with these wearable technologies. It's it's not ready for prime time yet, but I think we'll see explosive growth there and, and definitely the, performance I heard the data. I
5: watch can already start identifying AFib and some other. Yeah, things. so that was
2: presented at the American Heart Association yeah. conference. I, I, I may have been ACC. I'm, I'm blinking yeah. on which one, but yes, there is data out there that it can identify heart rhythm mm. problems, but you have to apply it to the right population. Sure, yeah. And there, are, you'll read in the media and anecdotes. where... Where it saved lives, and especially mm-hmm. in young people. I don't know that it's saving lives necessarily, mm-hmm. but yeah, it, it has the ability to detect. Um, heart rhythm disturbances out there.
0: How about things like stem cells and CRISPR or gene editing?
2: I, I, that That is the future. Understanding genomics, understanding the microbiome, understanding how inflammation plays a role in our bodies. I think we will see explosive growth in CRISPR is a fascinating tool. This is yeah. where we're able to do gene editing. Um, and this goes back to the heart of what we're talking about in terms of know your family history, know your risk yeah. factors. We will in the future responsibly, hopefully be able to edit genes that, that can decrease our risk of, of of having cardiovascular disease and other conditions as well. I think
5: we all know that person who's maybe smoked until 80 or 90 years old and eaten whatever they want and their cholesterol stayed perfect God bless and they never yeah. had a cardiovascular incident. And
4: then they die, yeah. you know, base jumping in at 110. <laughs> but I'm, but um, I'm fascinated by Eric Topol's idea of deep medicine. Um, so AI enabled mm-hmm. medicine and mm-hmm. he's a cardiologist. Mm-hmm. So I think he's talking a lot about... Um, algorithms to detect heart abnormalities or to read cardiac imaging and that allows the the cardiologist to get a deeper relationship with the patient
2: Oh, so absolutely that, yeah. artificial intelligence yeah. will, will so they do the grow. dirty work
4: yeah. and then the, the doctor is now the the person <laughs> yeah right I mean,
2: more and more <laughs> it, it comes down yeah, the the data is there the objective testing is all there yeah. but we really need the 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 one-on-one relationship the yeah. conversation the buy-in the the understanding yeah. of the the, pa- the healthcare provider and, and patient relationship is really at the heart of all of this and you know, mm. the treatment modalities and the testing may be great but if you don't have a belief in the person sitting across from you if you're not able to connect then mm. it's not going to matter because the, we know that the chances of compliance the chances of taking the medications the chances of following the treatment protocol become way less so it, it, it really is the one-on-one relationship the discussion it, that, that is at the mm. heart of all of this and that's what actually Eric Topal uh, um, yeah, argues that yeah. that's becoming more and more important and I like that parallel of deep learning
4: and deep connection. Yes. Right. The machine does a deep learning and the human does a deep connection. Correct. And we'll see. Yeah. yeah hopefully, time will tell. Hopefully that's the utopian picture. We'll the find future, out. Yeah. yeah.
0: Any uh, last message that you think would be beneficial for our listeners to know or You think it'd be important or valuable for their health and lifespan?
2: Two things. Number one, an athlete who's having symptoms, an athlete who has risk factors—cholesterol, diabetes, hypertension, or family history. If your health is important to you, get checked out. You know, it doesn't have to be a sports cardiologist. Obviously, we would love that. We would love if it's our program. We would love if it's any of our colleagues' programs throughout the country. But go see someone if there's a concern. Go see someone if you're not comfortable or you're not getting the answers you want. Be relentless. Be an athlete and, and keep fighting until you get the answer. The second, and, and I'm sorry we don't have more time to talk about this, hopefully we we can, is know CPR. So I, I encourage everybody to know CPR because CPR is one of the tools that we know saves lives. We mm-hmm. can talk about screening programs. We can talk about trying to prevent cardiovascular disease, mm-hmm. but despite the best screening, despite our best efforts, bad things are still going to happen sometimes. And we want to be able to respond with recognizing cardiac arrest, starting CPR immediately, knowing how to use an AED, and then getting the, getting that person to a hospital quickly. So we <laughs> We spend a lot of time talking about emergency action plans. We have a program that teaches CPR how to recognize and, and perform CPR and AED use in athlete-specific populations. We'd love to take that program all over the place. We've worked with the Florida Panthers, oh gosh, the Miami Dolphins. We'd love to come to your yeah, gym. You are more likely to perform CPR know. in your home huh? on your, your team, family member keep it. than you are like in Publix <laughs> or, or anywhere else. So no CPR, <laughs> know how to recognize it and, and jump <laughs> on it. You know, you're the um, guy. It, it's the most <laughs> important tool you'll have. It'll be a life-saving tool. I encourage every single athlete to know CPR. I encourage everybody to know CPR, but because I'm so passionate about sports and athletics, I want every single athlete trained to do, in CPR. I'm going to take you up on that. Oh, I would we're love coming. for you guys we're to coming. come to my yeah, yeah. Um, love that.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And if people wanted to get a consultation with you, where yes. can they find you? Where do you have your practice?
2: So uh, we practice out of Memorial Regional Hospital in Hollywood, Florida. Um, the, the phone number for the office is 954-265-7900. We have a website. Um, so we would, would love, would be honored to help out anybody who has concerns or questions.
0: Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. That was Dr. Eli Friedman. Thank you so much for being on the oh, podcast. Oh, such an honor. Thank you. So thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Bill, for hooking thank it you, up. Thank you, Bill,
2: for making the connection. Hey, no uh, problem. Happy to help you guys out. Yeah.
0: This is the first and only time I'm going to thank you for anything. <laughs>
3: it's on record. Enjoy It's <laughs> literally, I can download it and keep it forever.
0: Perfect. Thank you, guys. Catch thank you next time. Thank you so time. much.